Welcome to the story of Judaism, the history and story of the Jews. I am Yossi Silverman. I'm going to tell the story from a Jewish, educated perspective. Let's start with a quote from the early part of a ceremony called the Seder. Many Jews all over the world have a Seder at the Passover festival, which occurs at the beginning of the Jewish year in spring. Now, you're going to have to work with me here. I'm going to give the quote line by line in Hebrew then in English. Now, what I want you to do is... I want you to listen to the quote. I want you to listen to maybe the special emphasis that I'm going to be giving on certain words. I want you to think, what is the focus of this quote? Right from the start, our ancestors were idolaters. And now we have been drawn to God to serve him. As it is said, Joshua said to all the people, So said God, the God of Israel, Your fathers always dwelt on the other side of the river. Terach, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor. And they worshipped other gods. Why am I starting with this quote? I've got two reasons. I can think of no better traditional Jewish educational experience than the Passover Seder. If you're interested in Judaism, I recommend at least going to one Passover Seder in your life. It's an educational feast involving hands-on learning and storytelling. The main feature is called the Magid, a story of the entirety of Jewish history up to the Exodus and the entry into the Holy Land. And its chronology begins with Abraham's father. I've put special emphasis on Abraham's father, amongst other things, in the quote above. It also answers a problem that I've had. I wish to tell the story of the Jews. Where should I start? Now, I could start where most academics dealing with history start, the return of the exiled Judeans from Persia in the 5th century before the Common Era. Oh, quick tangential note. Many people of you listening might be used to the terms BC and AD. I'm not going to be using BC and AD. BC means before Christ. AD means Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. I'm going to be using CE, it means Common Era, and BC meaning before the Common BCE means before the Common Era. It seems appropriate if I'm giving a podcast about Jewish history from the perspective of the Jews, I'm going to use the appropriate terminology. So, Back to the historical academic answer, the beginning of Jewish history is the Persian period. At this point in history, we can talk about a distinct people called the Jews or Judeans, and not Israelites or lots of other different tribes that made up the Jewish people previously. By the way, the name Jews comes from the tribe of Judah, which is just one of the 12 tribes that made up the people. But at this point in history, you call Everybody, regardless of what their background may have been, Jew or Judean. We have historical sources from this period talking about Jews. So therefore, you can only really discuss Jewish history from this point. But I'm not going to discuss it from this point. Another possibility is I could claim that Judaism today is radically different from the 
religion of 2,000 years ago. The story begins with the Enlightenment, maybe. Or maybe modernity. Well, I'm not doing that. I could claim that the term nation, or Am in Hebrew, refers to the 12 tribes of Israel. And this corresponds to the 12 sons of Jacob. But I should start with Jacob. Nope, not doing that either. Why am I starting with Abraham? Well, Abraham expresses my main aim in these podcasts. I'm not just giving a historical review to the Jews. I'm trying to tell the story of Jews as many Jews would tell it themselves. If you want to put it in dry academic terms, I'm starting with what some call the founding myth, the Romulus and Remus of Jewish history, if you will. Personally, I'm telling the story of my people as understood by myself. Am I am a student of Biblical Hebrew, a bit of Talmud, traditional Jewish text, a little bit of the uh, academic and the archaeological stuff. This time, we'll be dealing with the story itself. Tune in next time, we'll, discu- we'll discuss the academic history. Lastly, the story of any group starts before the group existed, when they were all, and I put some emphasis on this too, idol worshippers. Back to the story of Abraham, or more accurately, the story of Avram as it's pronounced in Hebrew. Now, Avram was born 4,000 years ago in a small village in northern Iraq or Kurdistan called Or. He moved with his father Terah and his brother Nahor, or Nahor, to Haran. Please refer to the maps in this post on my website to see where those places are. The first question is, who is Avram? Now, he's not really a Jew, because Jews don't really exist then. So, for the purpose of these podcasts, we're going to call him an Ivri, or a Hebrew, as the text calls him. This means, either one, a descendant of a guy called Ever. Two, a wandering vagrant. Or three, a person from the Ever. What's the Ever? Could either mean, well, it means other side, literally. So that could either mean the other side of the Euphrates River, a person from the, in quotes, other group. That's what sociologists would call it. And he was married to a lady called Sarai or Sarah. And that possibly means princess. She has another name, Yiska, that means the one who seeks. People talk about Avram as being the first prophet. That's not really the case. Now, what we really want to call him is part of the prophetic team of Avram and Sarai. I'm going to be emphasizing the role of women in the story. I think it's important to lay emphasis on Sarai as a key player. So why did they leave Or? So Or is an interesting name. Linguistically, it probably should be pronounced in the Akkadian, and that's the language they spoke there, Ur or Uru. In Akkadian, this means city or city-state. It's like the word Ir, meaning city in Hebrew. I'll talk about this next time, but for the moment, we're going to discuss what the rabbis said, and they go in a completely different direction. Rather than using the guttural U that I've been trying to emphasize at the beginning of the name Ur, they use the open valve Ur, which in Hebrew means fire. The rabbis had a special way of explaining anomalies and awkward language in the Bible called Midrash. One Midrash explains that based on pure chronology and the fact that the Bible describes people living a shockingly long time, Avram's childhood was at the same time as a king called Nimrod. They explain that Nimrod was the king of Ur. 
and it was called Ore because Nimrod had built a huge fiery furnace there to punish all that defined him. It came to his notice that a young man was at large in the city publicising all his new beliefs and all the deities in the city were, in fact, a whole load of nonsense. There's only one true god and, guess what, the god was not called Nimrod. You can understand Nimrod's great anger at this audacity. He had the young man brought before him along with his family and he passed the sentence that Avram would be flung into the fire and if his god could save him, while he'd be allowed to live in exile. Nimrod extended the offer to the other members of the family who sheepishly took a step back from their rebellious brother. Avram was thrown into the flames and rather like another story, and that story appears in the book of Daniel, Avram was saved. Upon seeing this, his brother Nahor calls out, I'm sorry, I misunderstood you. Yes, um, I believe in one non-corporeal supreme being, and the other gods are claptrap too. And he jumped into the flames, and he died a horrible, nasty, fiery death. This isn't the official story. Don't try and look for this in the text of the Bible itself. It's a rabbinic midrash, an explanation of how the family had to move from Ur to Haran, and the sudden disappearance of Nahor from the text. So one day in Haran, when this is in the text, Avram hears God call to him, and God says, Leave his land and his father's house to a new land. Considering that I just told you that he'd already moved to Haran, why am I calling it his land? It seems that Haran is part of a contiguous territory settled by one distinct type of people, what historians call the Amorites or Amatu. And the new land is Canaan. See, Haran's in the old land. And that land was settled by the Canaanites, of course. It delineates two distinct cultures. One, Mesopotamian, from the area between the Tigris and the Euphrates, that is, by and large, Akkadian-speaking. And one, Levantine, meaning from the coastal area, where Israel and Syria and Lebanon are around this day. And they speak a precursor to Hebrew called Canaanite. In the new land, he'll be thought of an other, the sociological group of the other person, the outsider, an Akkadian-speaking Amorite Mesopotamian. So Avram takes his wife Sarai, who's not yet called Sarah, and his cousin Lot, and he journeys to Canaan, and he builds an altar, and then he leaves again on his way to Egypt. Uh, he just got there too. What's happening here? So Avram's a nomad. Nomads follow pasture. If there's a drought in Canaan, off they pop to Egypt. This is going to be happening in a few podcast time again. Apparently, Avram hadn't realised how pretty his wife was. This could be for a number of reasons. One, he was too busy changing the world. Two, it was a long journey. He had to focus on the world. And three, they'd left Haran at the age of 90 and hadn't much time to think of such things. So Avram says something like, Blimey, you're pretty. We're going to have to lie and claim that you're my sister so the Egyptians don't kill me so they can take you. 
According to the text, there was a practice in Egypt of killing an attractive woman's husband and enslaving the wife. Things went very well in Egypt. Sarai attracted a number of suitors, or gave Aram Sarah's brother, or kinsman, as you could call him, lots of gold and sheep and things to gain her in his favour. You might think that that's immoral, lying and all of that. But it was the practice to marry people within the same general family. And you could excuse Avram by calling him Sarai's brother as an idiom for kinsman. And after all, no one's really going to admit to being a pretty lady's husband in mad, bad, wife-robbing Egypt. Things got a little bit out of hand when Pharaoh takes a fancy to Sarai. So God smites Pharaoh's house with a plague and appears to him in a dream. God tells Pharaoh to take his hands off Sarai. So, Pharaoh, the next morning he wakes up, he summons Avram to his court, and he disciplines him for playing confidence tricks on him and his subjects. He explains how, oh no, we never do that sort of thing here in Egypt, and he will put to death the next guy who even looks at Sarayan. Okay, here's some free tickets, next caravan. I want you out of here by high noon. Oh, have some sheep. When they get back to Canaan, Avram has to solve a dispute between his shepherds and his cousins Lot's shepherds. So Avram agrees to settle in the hill country and Lot takes the fertile low country of the Jordan Valley. Now I'm telling you this because we're going to be discussing a little bit about the hill culture of the early Israelites later on in these podcasts. So Lot settles in a nice quaint little town called Sodom. What could possibly go wrong? So another group of warlike nomads turn up from Mesopotamia. They're led by four kings. Their chief being a guy called Kadarla Omer, king of Elah. And they are quite different from Avram. Avram wants to just farm some sheep in the hills. They want to carve out their own mini-empire. So they kidnap Lot and they declare war against all the Canaanites and they take Lot and some Canaanite kings all the way up to Syria and Avram is chasing them in hot pursuit he defeats the kings he brings the Canaanite kings back with Lot and he forms alliances with the local kings in the area now Avram's coming up for a hundred and he's still childless and so Sarai commands her maidservant Hagar to become Avram's concubine. The product of this is Ishmael, thought to be the father of the Arabs, known in Arabic as Ismail, and in Hebrew as Yishmael, it means God heard. Sarai feels much antagonism to the lad, and some say had some prophecies about future strife. She mistreats Hagar, and Hagar runs off to be turned back by an angel who tells her that she too is the mother of a great nation and must not despair and return to Avram meaning she returned to Avram and carried on living under the thumb of Sarai around this time God makes a really bizarre request of Avram God tells him to circumcise himself what was that? Yeah, you heard me right. Circumcise himself and his male household, including Ishmael, who just returned with his mother. I know that's really strange, but if you take it in context of the time, it was seen as a matter of cleanliness. Many um, cultures, especially the ancient Egyptians, they used to practice circumcision. Some cultures in Africa still practice circumcision. It was seen as a sign between God and Avram. This 
also involved changing Avram's name. Previously, he'd be called Avram, and Sarai was called Sarai. Avram means exalted father, and that with the addition of the H, the H is seen as a holy letter. It's part of the Tetragrammaton, the holy name of God. And so, exalted father becomes exalted godly father, Avraham, instead of Avram. And Sarai, my princess, becomes Sarah, God's princess. Whilst recovering from his operation, he's sitting out in his tent and he sees four travellers. He was accustomed to sit in front of his tent opening and look down the road to see if any travellers would come along. Considering his post-operation condition and his reaction to seeing four men, it's really quite startling what he does. Instead of sitting in an easy chair and waiting for them to come a bit closer, he ignores the excruciating pain in his loins and he runs towards them, smiling and beckoning them into his tent. He rushes about the guests, washing their feet and bringing them drinks and choice nibbles. He runs over to Yishmael and tells him to make some bread and he slays a young calf and the best of his herd for a nice prime steak for his guests. Now, why are we being told this? The story is trying to tell us something very important about the founder of these three world religions, Judaism, Christianity and Islam. He's described throughout Jewish history as being the very epitome of kindness. A later tradition from the 16th century will define Abraham as being the biblical representation of the godly virtue of Hesed. That means divine kindness. The last story I'm going to tell will really explain this concept. So the travellers reveal that they're angels from God, and as well as telling Sarah she's going to have a son, which caused a lot of mirth at the age of 90, I can tell you, they happen to let it slip that they're on the way to do God's work in Sodom. And a really strange thing happens. The Bible, using a theatrical term, breaks the third wall. It speaks in the voice of God directly to you, the reader. It says, Shall I hide from Avram what I'm about to do? Now, the Bible's not a normal book. Anybody who reads it like, I don't know, a science textbook or a geology textbook, a history textbook even, or a plain narrative, they're not actually doing a very good job of reading the Bible. In fact, we're going to stop calling it Bible. We're going to call it Torah. That's the name which Jews call it in Hebrew. It means teaching. It means a multi-layered text. The text is trying to have a dialogue with you. The text is saying to you that there is something special about this Abraham guy. He's worthy of one-on-one conversations with God, the creator of all the world. Also, the Torah and the story of the Jews is fond of using archetypes. One recurring archetype is that of defending lawyer. What do I mean by this? So, Moses is a similar archetype. God says, I'm going to wipe out the Jewish people. Moses says, then wipe me out too. God decides to tell Abraham his plan to wipe out the communities of the Jordan Valley. And he's doing this test of Abraham's kindness. And he's trying to alert you, the reader, to this. Abraham starts a barter with God. 
God says, all these people are evil. They must die. Now, if I was going to make a Facebook post like this one, one could be assured within five minutes I'd get a slew of responses, half of them agreeing with me. Yeah, those Jordan Valley guys, nasty pieces of work, why did we let them in in the first place, they're leeches on society, they're demons in human form, etc, etc, carpet bomb the place with fire and brimstone. And the other kind, oh you can't tar all the Jordan Valley guys with the same brush, maybe there's 50 people or 40 people living there who are good. Seemingly the text prefers the second kind of person, but it does actually follow the behaviour of the first. Avram first asks, maybe there's 50 good people there, maybe we can spare the place. There's, there's not 50 people who are good there, okay maybe 40 good people there, okay not 40 good people, maybe we'll try 30. By the time he's down to 10, it's a lost cause. So what does God do? God sends his angels to save the only one family that's a righteous in Sodom, and that's Lot's family. God then proceeds to carpet bomb the place with fire and brimstone. So maybe we could take from this a message about the nature of God, or the rightness or wrongness about those two thought processes. Maybe we could discuss morality, maybe we could discuss the whole idea of not judging a whole group by just the actions of a few crazy people, all those kind of things. Maybe that's a good process, maybe that's a bad thought process. Maybe we could even talk about how I clearly spend too much time on Facebook. But we are not going to discuss those things. Instead, I'm going to focus on our hero, Abraham. He argues with the creator of the world to save ten righteous men, that's what it comes down to in the end, in a community of hundreds of evil men. He comes all the way to what we're calling the other side. That's, again, referring back to that emphasis in the quote at the beginning. The other side of the river to introduce a new concept, that's mercy and kindness. This is all the more striking because he's an outsider to Canaanite culture. Is what those sociologists are calling the other group. And it's a running theme throughout these series will be a self-perception amongst Jews as being the other in the scare quotes group. And the effect this has on the development of their new moral code. This idea of kindness and mercy, that is the basis of this new people. And that's the starting point of the, this, this ideology, and the beginning point of the Jewish people. And it's the reason I'm starting with Abraham. So, next time, we're going to discuss the background to this story. The meta-story, so to speak. When could the story have occurred? What are our different options? What was life like then? Out of what historical conditions did the Jewish people emerge? So I'd like to thank you all for listening. As well as iTunes, I'll be posting a link to these podcasts on scoutisrael.com. There'll be a link to the podcasts on the blog and the first page of the website. I'm Yossi Silverman. This is the story of Judaism. And you've been a wonderful audience.